This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. Welcome back. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, episode 1.6, Welcome to Earth. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, short-time Gundam podcaster. And I'm Nina, anime fan and mecha anime convert. This week, First Gundam, episode 6, Garma Strikes. Before we start, I want to thank the people on the Gundam subreddit for their helpful and very nice comments about the podcast. Special thanks to Reddit user StrangerDanger77. <laughs> who corrected our English pronunciation of the Armenian-French-Japanese name of Shar Azanaburu. While we can't cite a particular source for this, we are fairly certain that Shar is named for the French-Armenian singer Shar Aznavour. I'm sure my pronunciation on that is terrible. <laughs> Apologies to French speakers. In Katakana, it's written as Shah. Shah. I'm not certain why the translators, when they were transliterating Shah's name into English, chose to use Char. <laughs> now, in one of the novelizations, they transliterated it as Shah, S-H-A, but they may have felt that was too close to Shah as in the title, as in the Shah of Iran. For the show, they may have chosen C-H-A-R because they knew his name was derived from Charles, but because it's the French version, if they had wanted people to pronounce it correctly, they probably should have chosen something starting with S-H-A. So apologies for my incorrect and often inconsistent pronunciation, but I will say it is very difficult to see C-H-A-R written on a screen and to remember to pronounce it Sha. But we are working on it, and we can promise you this problem will come up again. <laughs> we'll do our best, but they didn't make it easy for us. When in doubt, we'll be treating the katakana for characters' names as definitive in terms of their pronunciation. Except when we don't. Are there going to be times when we don't? Well, shar. There's no R in the katakana. But so the English, But the English, the accepted English pronunciation of shar is shar. shar but in Japanese, it's sha. <laughs> like I said, they didn't make it easy for us. Sha. Sharu. Char. It's definitely not sharu. <laughs> sharu. It's not. Charu. <laughs> no. <laughs> Stop it. Charuma. No. <laughs> Charuma? Charmin. Charming. Urusai. <laughs> the end of this episode includes some discussion of historical sexuality. There is nothing explicit and the tone is academic, but if you're at work, in mixed company, or around children who are made uncomfortable by history, you may want to save everything after our discussion of Xeon naming conventions for later. After the Gundam miraculously manages re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, our heroes realize that the Xeon attack has pushed them off course, into a trap. 
The Musai capsule rendezvous with the Xeon attack carrier, and Char is greeted by an old military academy classmate, Captain Garmazabi. Garma's surprise at Char's failure to capture the white base on the Gundam transforms to excitement at this opportunity to prove himself. On the white base, there is a hum of activity as the crew prepares to meet their pursuers. Lieutenant Reed and Ensign Bright disagree over strategy. Reed thinks they should deploy the Gundam immediately, but Bright knows Amuro needs to rest. Zeon forces the issue. Amuro has no choice but to head into battle. He and Hayato will operate the gun tank from the ground, fending off the Zeon fighter planes. Lieutenant Reed tries to take command, but Bright is quick to remind him, this is your first time on the white base, we have more experience than you. Reed threatens Bright with court-martial and calls him insubordinate, but Bright knows all will be forgiven if he can just keep the Federation technology safe. Amuro and Hayato are nervous but successful at shooting down a few darting fighters. Suddenly, a massive force of Xeon tanks appear over the crest of a hill. The gun tank is not mobile enough to take on the ground forces and Bright, in a moment of unusual emotion, begs Amuro to return to the white base and launch the Gundam. Catching him for a moment in the hangar, a concerned Frabo continues to do what she can for Amuro, handing him a nutrition drink before he enters the battle once more. Garma shifts his strategy, focusing on keeping the White Base and the Gundam from reaching the relative safety of the sea. Char watches the battle develop from Garma's ship, and we learn that he expected and even hoped Garma would fail, exculpating Char's own failures, and perhaps giving him the opportunity to make a heroic rescue. Struggling to control the Gundam in Earth's gravity, Amuro shoots down the aerial forces, but he is stunned by a barrage of heavy fire from the Xeon tanks and the mobile suits on the ground. In a frenzy of fear and adrenaline, Amuro charges, slashing and cutting with the Gundam's beam saber until there are no enemies left. Garma decides to retreat, needing time to reevaluate their strategy in the face of such a powerful new weapon. While the rest of the crew congratulate him and the orphans organize a celebration, Amuro succumbs to the pressure of so many lives dependent on him, the exhaustion of several days' battle, the sadness of losing his father and his home, and the grim reality of killing the enemy. He quietly shuts himself in his room, asking to be left alone. This is the episode that breaks Amaro. It's been building for episodes, but we know he barely sleeps. He only eats if someone forces him. He is not taking care of himself. He is entirely consumed by Gundam and Gundam-related tasks. Several times now in combat, especially in this episode, but we saw it in the last episode, we saw it before, he gets so fixated on his duels with the other mobile suits that he puts himself in danger. In the previous episode, he refused to come back in during re-entry, and if not for the magical space poncho, he would have died. There's a sense that he's so focused on trying to shoot down Char that he ignores the other Zaku to the detriment of his mission and the white base. Yeah, we see Frabo looking after him as she has up until this point, but this is the most concerned we see her. And all she can really do is wish him well when she sends him off and make sure he gets a little bit of energy drink or nutrition drink or... Pure methamphetamines. <laughs> Ooh, that military-grade stuff. He does go on a kill-crazy rampage right after she gives him that drink. Coincidence? I think not. He also fixates on Hayato's earlier comment about needing to split the attention of the enemy, which initially he strongly disagrees with. However, once he's in the Gundam, thinking to himself that maybe it's easier to fight alone, suddenly he's thinking more about getting away from everyone else, fighting on his own. What I think he's expressing is a feeling of 
resentment that everyone is depending on him. It would be so much easier to fight if he didn't have to worry about protecting the white base. Also, that he's just not thinking clearly at this point. He's so caught up in what he's doing. He's so exhausted and overwrought that he can't really concentrate. And he just, he has this one thing he remembers that Hayastoho said to him, and he just keeps coming back to it. And it's the only stable pillar he has. Well, he has that moment where he wonders to himself, Ugh, it wouldn't it be nice if Bright had given me more specific instructions about what to do once I'm out there. Not that he usually appreciates Bright's advice, nor even follows it most of the time. As he's breaking down, the, there's a need for direction. It's harder to make choices. It's harder to decide or prioritize. And having somebody give him orders, give him something to do, is very helpful. And there are a few moments when he could theoretically ask Sela or ask Bright, ask someone on the bridge. You know, Sela mentions to him when he first drops down, wait for the gun tank. I don't know that Bright would have necessarily had an answer for him. Bright's expertise is space, but he could have asked and he's too tired to think of it or too independent at this point. Well, and that feeling like everyone is relying on him, everyone is depending on him, the corollary to that, the other side of the coin, is that he can't rely on anyone. He can't depend on anyone. He can't lean on anyone. And when he comes back after the battle and they're there to support him, he ignores them. He doesn't try to take any kind of solace in his friends. He doesn't get any benefit out of their efforts. He just wants to be alone. We see Amuro in a frenzy, attacking everything he can reach, but in an uncontrolled, frantic way. He stops when he slashes his beam saber through the ground. We actually get a scene of him, what looks like hacking at already destroyed wreckage. If that's not a frenzy, I don't know what is. And he stops when there are no more enemies left to destroy. You call it reused animation or whatever you like, but there is a scene where he literally tears Zazaku apart with his bare hands. It's the, I think it's the same animation from the very first episode, but here it's that much more gruesome in the middle of this frenzy. I say his bare hands, but I really mean with his Gundam. <laughs> with his Gundam hands. The transhumanism discussion of how a person interfaces with the Gundam and what that means for person and machine is something we will delve into more on later episodes. So I can't remember where I read this, and if one of you happens to hear this and it sounds familiar and you can tell me what it's from, I will be eternally grateful. But I read somewhere that a substantial portion of military training is not about the mechanics. It's not about getting fit. It's not about teaching you to be a good shot. It's not about teaching you to think tactically. It's about turning you into the sort of person who can with planning and deliberation, but without anger or passion or malice, kill another person. Because most humans, we agree, are capable of violence in the heat of the moment, when they're deeply afraid, when they're deeply angry. But to be the sort of person who doesn't need to be deeply afraid or deeply angry to kill someone else is actually something that takes considerable conditioning to achieve. And that's a big part of what training for soldiers is. And Amaro has not had that training. And in the past, the time scale is a little flexible, but say three days, he's killed dozens of people, most of them today. And his home has been destroyed, and his father is missing and probably dead. Yeah, just the massive weight of tragedy that hangs over him at this point. And the pressure of how people are depending on him, the lack of sleep, the lack of food, all of it cumulatively 
And he just wants to lie in his bed and be alone, not be depended on for a minute. I don't think I understood that feeling when I first watched this as a child. This is an episode where we spend a lot of time in battle. And one of the first things that struck me was the modular nature of a bunch of the war machines. Yeah, no one can just have tanks. They have to be tanks that are also jets or tanks that are also Gundams. Right. We have the Magella tanks that Zeon uses where this portion at the top of the turret can break off and become a fighter jet. We find out that the cockpit of the Gundam can be attached to the gun tank for some reason. Why do they do that? They never make sense to me why they do that. Do you want the in-universe explanation or the real one? Uh, let's go with in-universe first. Okay, so I guess in theory, the Gundam cockpit has been tuned to Amuro's particular specifications, his reflexes, stuff like that. And it also contains that computer assistance, the learning computer that we've talked about. Swapping out the cockpit like that allows it to get the benefit of the data from previous combats and also to accumulate more data from this combat. But the real explanation is toys. Of course. Yeah. So Clover, which is the toy company that was the sponsor for Gundam during its run, had had their biggest recent success with a similar mecha toy that was a sort of combination toy, and they wanted to recreate that. So for the Gundam toys, their top-of-the-line set was the deluxe combination set, and it involved the Gundam, the gun tank, the gun cannon, the core fighter, and this core block that would all swap pieces around. Deluxe combination set sounds like something I would order at a Japanese restaurant. At a Japanese McDonald's, it might come with a Gundam. <laughs> Well, they don't, strictly speaking, transform. This made me think of Transformers. Now, I think of Transformers very much as being of the 80s, but we are in the late 70s at this time. And was there overlap? Did Transformers predate Gundam at all? Sort of. You've got the timeline for Transformers. It did start in the 80s, but the toys from the first run of Transformers actually predated the show by quite a bit. And what happened was that an American company, Hasbro, found a bunch of these transforming, combining robot toys from different companies, from different product lines in Japan, and they decided they were going to license a whole bunch of them and combine them into one product line here. And thanks to some changing regulations about children's programming and how commercial it could be in the US, they also decided they were going to make a cartoon in order to advertise their new toys. So that's how Transformers came about. But that means that there were a whole bunch of toys that became part of Transformers in Japan knocking around before Transformers actually launched. The other thing that struck me was when the tanks appear coming over the hill, it's a lot of tanks. It is just a monstrous number of tanks. And for whatever reason, because of my media exposure throughout the years, I don't typically picture lots of tanks altogether. I picture, you know, a couple of tanks, one tank, not dozens. For most of the history of tanks, you would be right. But there was a brief period around World War II when massive tank formations were in vogue. The original Panzer divisions were like 400 tanks to a division. Wow. It was a, it was a time when they made tanks quickly and cheaply, and they made as many as they could. I gotta say, bright of this episode 
bears no resemblance to our pre-Luna 2 Bright. Is that a comment on the animation quality? <laughs> no, I didn't think Bright was as bad as some of the others. It's mostly a comment on Bright's attitude toward Lieutenant Reed, who, after his capsule is damaged, winds up on the white base, trying to take control, trying to be the one to dictate strategy and give orders, clearly frustrated by the haphazard nature of their crew. He's more senior than Bright. We're not clear whether Bright as acting captain has more of a right to give orders than the more senior Lieutenant Reed. Yeah, it's sort of unclear. If Bright were properly a captain and, say, an admiral came aboard, then Bright would still be in command of the ship. But in this situation where Bright is an ensign, it's really unclear. Bright is very willing to ignore him. And this is new for Bright. Pre-Luna 2 Bright, even if he disagreed, would have been much more, yes sir, no sir, right away sir, very precise, very uncertain. Well, as we discussed back in episode 3, Vote to Attack, Bright was looking for anybody else to make decisions for him. Anyone, Sela, Mirai, Hayato, the entire crew. But this Bright is very blunt in telling Lieutenant Reed, we have more experience than you. We know the white base better than you do. And Bright knows his crew. He knows how much they can take. He knows that he's pushing them too hard. We see that with his interactions with Amuro. He also, when Reed calls him insubordinate and threatens him with court-martial, is very quick to point out a, a lesson he has recently come to learn, a very cynical and jaded lesson. Success forgives a lot of sins. As long as he brings the White Base and the Gundam safely to the Federation, they're not going to court-martial him. And at this point, he might not care. He might be so exhausted, so tense. So fed up. That court-martial him or not, at least he'll be done. Speaking of Bright's relationship with Amuro and the strain that this is taking on both of them, when Bright calls Amuro to get out of the gun tank and sortie in the Gundam, he's the most emotional we've seen him. He's not ordering, he's not even asking, he's begging Amuro to go out again. Which is, frankly, an acknowledgement that he understands what he's asking of Amuro this past few days is superhuman. It would be difficult for a trained soldier to do what they've been asking Amuro to do, but they don't have any other options. They need him. And Amuro acknowledges that's the case. He says, sure, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, but what else are we going to do? Yeah, I think Frabo asks, can you? And his response is something along the lines of, it's not a matter of if I can or not, I have to. And then at the end, we see a rare smile from Bright as he thinks about the fact that they succeeded, the fact that they have preserved the Gundam and the White Base for the Federation and how much better their chances are now. And I think part of that smile was also for Amuro. Well, he says, let's go greet our returning Gundam warrior, which is terminology he hasn't used before. And it's an attitude to Amuro that he hasn't had before. Usually when Amuro comes back, Bright has some constructive criticisms, some suggestions about how he could have done better. But this time, Bright has realized that they shouldn't have won. They shouldn't have won almost any of their fights up to this point. They've been surviving barely over and over again. And whether Amuro does it by the book or whether he's a little rough doesn't matter so much. They're all still alive. 
We also see him develop more confidence in his crew, including Amuro, but not just Amuro, all the rest of them as well. When he acknowledges to Reed, we have more experience than you. It's not himself. He's not saying I have more experience than you. We do. We know this technology better. But I do think that's a transition. I think pre-Luna 2, lots of criticism, lots of instructions. In episode 5, for the re-entry, we see the scene between him and Mirai. He's checking in with her. He knows she hasn't really done this before. He tells her to just focus on re-entry. But he's not talking down to her. He's doing what he needs to so that she can be successful at her job on the ship. And by episode six, confidence. Yeah, it takes a lot of confidence to ignore the orders, the wrong orders of a superior officer. And a lot of trust. For a more fun topic, let's discuss Xi'an internal politics and the very pretty Garmazabi. I don't know about very pretty. In that first scene with him, he looks green. Yes, but all right, he's a little sallow even at the best of times. But that purple hair and the way he like twirls it, he's bishy. He is a pretty boy. For reference, bishi is short for bishonen. It literally means beautiful young man. Garma and Shar are old military academy buddies. Since then, Garma has been promoted up to captain and is in charge of at least some significant portion of the Earth Occupation Forces, while Shar has been making a name for himself as a mobile suit ace. Indeed. Yeah, Garma Zabi. So, any relation to Dozel? Yes. <laughs> That's all I'm going to get out of him today, I guess. It's true. The first weird moment for me is Garma talking about, ah, maybe I'll finally impress my sister. And all Shar can do is his creepy, semi-maniacal laugh. <laughs> ha 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 ha. Ha 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 ha. At the idea of Garma impressing his sister. <laughs> Though Shar does suggest that Garma might get the Xeon cross out of this. Because in case anybody hadn't figured out yet, this is about Germany. I bet there are a ton of military awards with cross in the name. Yeah, but what's the famous one? Okay, fine. When when your literal red baron <laughs> says, oh, you'll win the National Military Cross Award. Fine. If you're not intimately familiar with the decorations of Germany in World War I and World War II, we are talking about the Iron Cross. There's clearly something like a friendship between Garma and Shar, although one gets the impression that these are two people who don't have friends, and so this weird relationship between the two of them is the closest they get to that. But it's pretty evident that there's something else going on here, too. I mean, we know well, Shar is intriguing against Garma for his right. own benefit. It becomes immediately apparent that there is also some competition here. Char feels that Garma's failure protects him. That, oh, well, if Garma failed with all these other soldiers, it wasn't that I was incompetent. It's that this was a really difficult to impossible task. And he was hoping that Garma would go out personally and get himself into some danger so that Char could swoop in and heroically rescue him. And by the end of the episode, we know Garma has figured that much out, at least. He says, why didn't you tell me how strong this weapon was? And of course, Char is like, oh, I did tell you. <laughs> well, and the dangerous glint in Char's eye that ends the episode. You mean after their steamy shower scene together? Only one of them is in the shower. I will say, though, very first fan service of the show, I was not expecting it to be Char. <laughs> also... And this is not established canon lore, so this is my personal theory. I think they slept together when they were in the military academy. There's a little bit of a vibe. There's a, there's a definite tension between the two of them. There's like a pitcher-catcher kind of thing. <laughs> 
And for various reasons, I think there's some more support for this later on, just in terms of who the characters are and how they how they interact. Anyway, so yes, possibly former lovers, definitely current rivals. Yeah, well, and there's a sense that Garma resents Char a little bit too, his heroics, everyone calling him the Red Comet. He's at least a little bit pleased to see that Char has failed to bring in the white base. And Char... This felt to me like a dig. It felt like Char was rubbing it in that Garma's sister is higher ranked than him and is his uh, immediate commander. Miscellaneous things we noticed. I think Bright's spine must be the reason that he never sits down. He's only just grown it and he's still not sure how it works. <laughs> Oh man, so much goodwill that I had for the Federation and its gender politics ruined by Amaro and his, I can't ask a woman how I should fight. He's 15. He's a 15 year old boy who hasn't slept in three days. Also just doesn't make sense because he immediately, when he has to suggest someone else to pilot the gun tank, recommends Sela. Yeah. Well, he says Kai or Sela, and then he's like, wait, Sela would be good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the white base gunners hit a single target until they were relieved and Sela took over. And then she immediately destroyed a tank with her first shot. And they both had bandages on their heads. Maybe you shouldn't have guys with concussions be your gunners. It's also the show making a point of telling us that Sela is an incredibly good shot. So we have Sela with her gun, Sela fighting with Char. All these little hints that there's more going on there that we don't know about. How did the orphans find champagne? Who gave those children champagne? That is a good question. Also, that cart they were pushing around did not seem to have any pie in it, but it did have like six baguettes. There was a huge stack of plates. Maybe it was under the plates. Maybe. Or the sausages or the champagne. I think this episode has the two most egregious bits of reused animation so far. The first one being the one I mentioned earlier, where Amuro in the Gundam grabs the gas mask thing on the front of one of the Zaku and tears it off and throws the Zaku, mm -hmm. which we saw in the first episode. And it's just such a extremely distinct scene that maybe if you were watching these one a week, you would miss that that was the same thing over again. But we've, we've... seen it enough times. And... Yeah. The other one, though, is in this same episode, I think they use the exact same animation for deploying the gun tank as retrieving it. They just play <laughs> it in reverse and flip it. Nice. Which means that the gun tank does a basically straight vertical ascent. ascent and then with no indication of how it does this. Backs up. <laughs> into Changes the, direction uh, in midair. Yeah. At a right angle. Yeah, the gun tank does a lot of things that don't make sense to me, though. I, the gun tank is not a good design. I don't know why it is. <laughs> In the recap, I mentioned soldier psychology and the emotional toll of killing and combat. 
I will be referencing and paraphrasing the website Military Science Fiction, full reference in the show notes. We have pretty good data on this from World War II onward. In World War II, only 15-20% to of soldiers fired at the enemy, and only 1% of fighter pilots accounted for 30-40% to of downed enemy fighters. In the Korean War, this increased to 55% of soldiers firing at the enemy, and in Vietnam, 95%. But don't think this meant they were willing to kill anybody! In Vietnam, it took an average of 52,000 bullets for an infantry unit to kill one enemy soldier. Wow. Do you know if those percentages are all soldiers or only soldiers who would have actually been in combat? This is a reference mainly to infantry. Artillery, I believe, had higher kill rates. Special ops who could call in artillery had higher kill rates. I will talk about why that's the case a little later in these notes. I assume the transport corps had lower kill rates. <laughs> one, one would imagine, but who knows? Training methods have changed a lot in the intervening years. Soldiers now practice firing at realistic targets rather than paper ones, and in more realistic settings, making the shoot-to-kill action more instinctive. Modern methods also focus on creating distance from the target, physical, mechanical, and emotional. Physical distance is self-explanatory. How many feet away are you? Mechanical distance involves viewing the enemy through a scope or a screen and dehumanizes the target. It also applies when your target is a ship, a jet, or a Gundam, rather than a human. Similarly, calling in an artillery strike on a position that you can't even see. Emotional distance has many forms, moral, social, and cultural, but they all come down to othering the enemy. If the enemy is evil, or your social or cultural inferior, this creates emotional distance. Finally, orders from a superior officer increase firing rates, removing the decision from the hands of individual soldiers. What all these have in common is that they increase willingness to kill the enemy and lessen the psychological toll afterwards. Amuro has mechanical distance, but that's all. The Minovsky particle keeps combat close range, and we never hear anyone discuss Zeon as alien, evil, or lesser. There is no squad leader ordering his attacks. Once on the battlefield, his methods and targets are mostly self-directed. The other aspect of soldier psychology that Amaro illustrates is battle fatigue, albeit in a sped-up way. It's generally believed that after 60 days of frontline combat, 98% of a unit will be psychiatric casualties and unable to continue. So there's a hard cap on the amount of active combat you can put a person in. These 60 days follow a cycle. 10 days to acclimatize to the constant threat, followed by 20 days of maximum efficiency. This is followed by 15 days of overconfidence, as efficiency declines due to the physical toll of battle and adrenaline. The final 15 days are characterized by emotional exhaustion, decreased willingness to attack or even engage with other tasks, and marked a decrease in will. I think we've seen that in the past six episodes. Accelerated, as you pointed out, but it took him about two episodes to acclimatize to combat. He was probably at maximum efficiency in the fighting in episode 3, Vote to Attack, and then in episode 4, Escape from Luna 2. He was overconfident in episode 5, and now he is fatigued. We see him become more used to the Gundam, working confidently and efficiently, starting to behave erratically as the pressure and adrenaline take their toll, and finally, he wants nothing to do with his friends and just wants to get away from any activities or responsibilities. Amaro is a textbook fatigue case.
We meet some new Xeon machines in this episode, so now is a great time to talk about Xeon names. First, you might have noticed that the Xeon Magella tanks have kind of a weird name, especially since we've already seen a Federation battleship named after a Portuguese explorer and apparently the sort of guy to think that 49 against 1500 is good odds, Ferdinand Magellan. But despite the similar names, those tanks are probably not actually named after the same guy at all. Federation tech tends to get English names like Magellan, Salamis, Albion, Pegasus, etc. Aren't some of those Greek? Yeah, but <laughs> the English words for Greek ideas. Okay, fine. Xeon machines, especially in the early shows like First Gundam, get names that are based on Japanese or German. Let's go over what we know so far. The Zaku was originally conceived as a disposable grunt sort of enemy, and so its name is a play on the Japanese word Zako, which literally means inferior fish but translates more accurately to something like small fry. The similar-sounding zakutsu zakutsu is the onomatopoeia for the sound of soldiers marching and might have also been an inspiration for the name. Musai, as in the cruisers used by Zeon that carry the zaku, means lacking talent or ability and is a nice match for the zaku it carries. So that's what we know. I'm speculating a bit for the rest. In Japanese, the Magella tanks are called Mazera Ataku tanks. And Mazeru means to mix, which seems like an appropriate name for a tank that is also half airplane. The Gao attack carrier, the giant ship that Garmazabi commands, might get its name from the German word Gaul, a pejorative term for a nag or a hack. The sound in Japanese would be about right, and the meaning is very similar to the name for the other Xeon carrier, the Musai. As for the DOP fighters, that's a bit tricky, and I'm not so confident about this one. The name might come from the German word doppel, meaning a duplicate, or from the Japanese term for the Doppler effect, doppelu, or for something that is submerged, doppelvi. I'd love to figure this one out, so if anybody has any good information or a good theory, please let us know. When I suggested that Shar and Garma might have had a romantic or sexual relationship in the past, Sharma. I wasn't just basing that on the awkward tension between the two Xeon officers. There are some very good historical and cultural reasons to believe that First Gundam's creators may have intended to suggest that sort of relationship. Homosexuality, and in particular, homosexuality among elite men in Japan, is a tradition that goes back at least as far as the 11th century, making it at least as old as the hot towels that we talked about last episode. In monasteries, and more importantly for our purposes, in the samurai class, same-sex relationships typically took the form of an older mentor-younger mentee relationship called non-shoku. There was no sense at this point of being gay as opposed to being straight. These non-shoku relationships were viewed as separate from and not in competition with relationships with women. Some men might prefer other men, some might prefer women, but to pursue either exclusively would have been considered odd. In these non-shoku relationships, the older partner, or ninja, would train the younger, called the chigo, in the skills necessary to become a warrior. And sometimes, often, if both parties consented, they would also become lovers until the younger partner graduated from his apprenticeship. This was considered to have a mutually ennobling effect. The older would teach the younger to be a good samurai, and would himself be motivated not to shame himself in front of his lover. This is actually very similar to some homosexual relationships between warriors in ancient Greece. The famous Sacred Band of Thebes was an elite cadre of 150 pairs of male lovers, one older and one younger. It was said that the Sacred Band never retreated from a battle, 
because no warrior among them could bear to show weakness in front of his lover. During the Meiji Restoration in the 1860s, public sentiment began to turn hostile toward same-sex relationships, but nanshoku in the military continued even as the old samurai system evolved into the national army and navy. It was particularly prevalent in the old samurai domain of Satsuma, where even into the early 1900s, adolescent males were discouraged from having any kind of associations with women, but affairs with other boys? Freely tolerated. It was Satsuma samurai that formed the core of the new Japanese navy, and so the navy gained a special reputation for its nanshoku practices, including some nicknames that I cannot say on this podcast. <laughs> There were rumors that the Navy evaluated potential recruits based on their beauty, and in 1912, essayist Ozaki Shiro wrote that the Japanese Navy does not employ cadets who are not good-looking, referring to them as the bishonen of the Japanese Navy, and suggesting that they were excellent representatives of Japan. Public discussion of homosexuality between soldiers was discouraged during World War II, but those relationships were definitely absolutely still happening. Newspapers and official censors appear to have routinely had to quash stories about same-sex love suicides in the military, and many prominent gay writers in Japan later described having their first experiences with same-sex love while serving during the war. And after all, you rarely need to ban discussion of something that isn't happening. Even in those later years, nanshoku practices remained especially prevalent in, of all places, military academies, where sexual relationships between adolescent students were thought to evolve into lifelong bonds of friendship and camaraderie. One naval minister, Yamamoto Gono Hyoe, was said to have favored his bishonin schoolmates at the naval academy by giving them top posts in the fleet. And hey, where was it that Garma and Shar met? Do you mean Sharma? I was thinking about what you said about adolescent men being discouraged from associating with women. And I wonder if that's because you could ruin a woman's reputation by associating with her. Just associating with a man wasn't going to ruin him in any way. That might have been part of it. But I think the bigger factor was they were afraid that associating with women would weaken the boys. Mm, so women were a, a necessity eventually. Yeah, to make more men. <laughs> and to take care of geniuses. Rage. <laughs> claws. It's a podcast, Nina. They can't see you. Claws unsheathing. Next week, we'll return with episode 1.7, Free Fallen, to talk about These child soldiers don't understand the suffering of being old. Absent mom, food mom, and battle mom. Carrots and sticks. Too many G's. Nuclear-level stink eye, Kai the Fool, Pow right in the kisser, the pianos of tension, Shar and Amaro are feeling blue, let's have a riot, define safe, and what we've got here is a failure to communicate. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or come shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us directly by coming to scenic New York City 
and yelling that remaking first Gundam with modern CGI is a good idea on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. In a current TV series, they would show us the butt. I guess it would be a good podcast cat. Yeah, to be our mascot. Shout out <clears throat> to our listener, Agatha. These <laughs> uh, giant robots are very sexy. So sexy. <laughs> He threw off my groove. People get defenestrated for that, you know. We're on the first floor, I'll be fine. <laughs> it's more symbolic. <laughs> what is with the traffic today? All right, how are we feeling? Do we think that's a wrap? That's good, yes.